So people ask me, how does it feel to be an Anglican priest versus a pastor that I was before, previously, for many years? What is something that people notice or people say to you? What are, what's the difference? And one of the first things that come to my mind is um, people ask me a lot about my shirt. So I say this because I've been wearing a clerical shirt for many weeks throughout the summer. During the very hot days of the summer, it's a very hot shirt, black, very black. And today I decided to wear not a clerical shirt, a white short sleeve, anticipating a little bit warmer weather. Obviously I was wrong. But also in part because my thinking was, this feels like a little bit of a heavy message that I prepared, and I wanted to lighten it up. The question, why do you wear a clerical shirt, and when do you not wear a clerical shirt? To be honest, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I ask Dennis Alcombe every Sunday, pretty much, should I wear this, should I not wear this? And that's where I get my guidance. I feel like I should know. Again, it's another thing that I feel like I should know. And I am learning. So all that to say, it feels like a little bit of a heavier message. So that was, for some reason, my thinking behind wearing a white shirt. Today, we begin the final stretch of our Summer Together series, where we wrestle with the reality of our church's transition. And this last stage, which we, which we call redirection, is ironically about beginnings, new beginnings. Redirection is about getting our hearts ready to love again, to serve again, to hope again, to re-engage. It is about preparing our hearts to restart so that we can seize upon the new opportunities of life that God places before us. Now, central to the work of redirection is inner work. To look into ourselves and ask, what is it that I'm longing, that I'm chasing after, that I desire in my life? Or for us as a community, what is the vision of reality that captivate and drive and define us and our values and who we are that motivate us? And then do the work of aligning ourselves to that. Without doing this hard work, whatever restart we experience will be, at best, temporary. A friend of mine describes this fitful experience of spiritual formation like driving a car with bad alignment. Anybody ever experienced driving a car with bad alignment? It's a very frustrating experience. You have to, hold, you have to kind of hold, in order to go straight, you have to turn, right? The car wants to lean to one side because the wheels are misaligned. When you are paying attention to your life, like on a Sunday afternoon after a nice worship, you can actually remember and you can hold that wheel and you can have that car go straight. But eventually, the default line of your car, the desire of your car, is to take you someplace else. I can be patient for a day. I can even be pretty good for about, about my anxiety for a couple of days. I can even 
deal with my control issues for a week. But eventually, whether it's the accumulation of the routines of our days or a stressful moment, we find our lives on a lean, straying from our soul's intended destination. Now, too often, I feel like we try to counter a situation like that with practices and strategies that's akin to saying, well, if your car leans to the left, then let me give you some workout program for your left hand. Let me help you do some exercises to make your left arm stronger. I don't want to get into specific examples or details here. You could come up with all these experiences that perhaps you've tried, that perhaps you've even recommended and in your life. But the point is, what we really need is not strategies or how-tos as much as to have our imaginations, our vision of life become so captivated and so aligned with who God is and what God values that our lives get realigned. In a nutshell, this is precisely what I think Apostle Paul is getting to in his letter to the Philippians that we encounter in chapter 2. In the midst of the experiences of fitful spiritual formation buffeted by imminent suffering and persecution, conflicts in the community, and after acknowledging all of these difficulties that's scaring the, the, the people at Philippi, I'm sure, Paul doesn't recommend a list of practices or the adopting of policies to limit damage, left arm strengthening exercises. Instead, he, he says, live in such a way that you are credit to the gospel. That's his application of the day. Live in such a way that you are a credit to the gospel. Live aligned to the gospel in such a way that the logic of your life, through that, people can see the gospel. And he says again in chapter 2, verse 5, heightening the call for realignment. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It might be clearer to say mindset or attitude because this isn't about doctrines and theology so much as have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And then what follows is the articulation of the guiding vision of Christian life and faith that no matter how many times I read it, it still shatters me. It is the central principle, I believe, that all of us are called to, and the central principle around which we align our community. This beautiful hymn. The theologian Emil Brunner suggests that we could actually look, look at this passage as a parabola for those of us who like mathematical illustrations. Three people. 
with three basic movements. Movement one, Jesus exists at the height of glory, being in very nature God, at the highest of heights. He considers what it means to be God and then takes this progressive downward movement, takes on the form of a human servant, humbles himself to become obedient even unto death and to the lowest point, even death on the cross. And then, surprisingly, the movement takes an upward swing. Therefore, because of this downward movement, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a story of Christ summarized in such a beautiful way. It's a hymn, an ancient hymn that's probably sung in the churches, but it's also rare in that it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God, the mind of Christ, even before his earthly ministry, a pre-incarnational mind of Christ, whereupon we can imagine the Son of God kind of just, who knows how time works for God, right? But he's considering what it means to be God. He's thinking, hmm, what does it mean to be God? To be equal with the Father, and he determines that it is not something to be seized or hoarded or grasped, it says, to be taken and used for his own advantage, but rather he determines that it is to be used in service, and so he empties himself. This word emptying in Philippians Two has played a very important role in the doctrinal formation of the church. But the focus sometimes in our church history has been to talk about the Christ emptying himself to describe some sort of a mechanism, the mechanics of incarnation, whereby God empties, where God the Son empties his divinity and step by step becomes human. But I think the focus and the most recent scholarship is pointing to the fact that that, that might be an overreading, that the most obvious and plain reading of this emptying might be something that you and I can actually relate to, this pouring out of oneself, this emotional, psychological pouring out of oneself that one does out of absolute love and care for somebody else. The psychological and emotional act of pouring oneself out. And this is what Jesus does. He empties himself, he pours himself out to become in very nature a servant, humbling himself in obedience, even to death on a cross. Now, why? For a long time, when I was younger, I used to think that the main reason Christ did this was because of us, or even more personally, because of me. I used to think 
Christ's incarnation was centered around my need for redemption, that the pre-earthly Christ looked upon this fallen, broken humanity and had pity. So he came down and he took the fall and he thought of me. Now, certainly there is truth in this. But if you look at this passage, look at this hymn, it actually doesn't even mention us or of our need. Additionally, if we read this in the context of Paul's admonition to the community, that if this was Paul's way of motivating the church of Philippi to understand and embody Christ's motivation, and if that motivation was mainly pity, then his general argument for a truly humble community of mutual servanthood feels a little thin. So, again, why? The picture that emerges, and I believe this is attested by some of the best scholars, and I got 20 minutes. We'll talk about some of this outside. If you want to, if you're into that stuff as well, and we'll talk about parabola as well, why that would be an interesting illustration. But the picture that emerges is that of the pre-earthly Christ, contemplating what it means to be equal to the Father. And he comes to the staggering conclusion that to be God is to empty oneself and to live the life of a servant. That to be God is to be a servant. That in choosing to become one of us and adopting the life of a servant, Christ does not, in fact, lay down his divinity, but in fact, he considers what it means to be God, and he comes to the understanding that being God is most essentially and most fittingly expressed as a servant in self-giving love. And he writes as, nothing described by either in the form of God or by to be equal with God is given up. Rather, it is divinity itself that is reinterpreted, redefined, understood in a manner in striking contrast to what one might have expected. For the real theological emphasis of the hymn, therefore, is not simply a new view of Jesus. Rather, it is a new understanding of God. It is because Christ emptied himself. It is because Christ took on our humanity. It is because he became a servant, even to death, that Christ is exalted. For in Jesus' decision to give himself in self-pouring love, that Jesus rightly understood what it means to be God. Christ in his incarnation doesn't lose his divinity. Rather, 
he redefines what it means to be God. If this is what it means to be God, then imagine now what it means to be human made in the image of God. And this is the realignment. And this is, I believe, what Jesus is doing in Luke 22, realigning the disciples to say, you have misunderstood what it means to be great, what it means to follow me, because you have misunderstood what it means to have authority, to be like God, to lead your people. For if in Christ Jesus we discover that God understands Godhood by becoming a servant, doesn't it make sense that we are most human when we understand our humanity in terms of being servants? It's as simple as that. I am not always sure that I do this well in my life, but I certainly do admire it when I see it in others. And I can say, at least in that admiration, I can attest, and I think all of us can, that when we see this sort of servanthood, that we find people to be the most human. We are blessed to have many in our church, I believe, who embody Christ's servant heart in their lives. And I've been blessed by that. One area that I'll point out is, and there are many people in all so many different areas, but one area that my family, we've been blessed with, is in the area of children's ministry. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, by all regular metrics of how you look upon a children's ministry at church, our church doesn't have a dazzling children's worship with lots of music and lights and puppets, amazing programs at VBS where they have slides that where you go, why don't I take my kids to that instead of to Knott's Berry Farm? Or beautiful facilities. We have none of these, and we don't. But our kids have loved coming to Holy Trinity. From day one, they have loved coming to Holy Trinity. Because all we have are amazing servant-hearted teachers who I know at least that my kids will attest and they will surely be the first to testify in their lives. They have shown the alignment of Christ's incarnation. They have shown the alignment of the gospel in their servant-hearted lives. They don't use those words but you know what I mean. I admire it. My friend Matt, 
who leans into this call to be a servant every day in his life, in mundane ways with his neighbors. And he does this by looking at their garden and figuring out if there are ways in which he can help them out. And one day he decided to clear out a messy garden that a neighbor, instead of complaining to the association about a messy garden, he decided to simply start the work of clearing it out because he thought, you know what, maybe this guy's busy, maybe this guy has issues that I don't even know about. And he felt the call to serve, and he leaned into that. And they, this neighbor and him, they became fast friends. I admire it when I see it in others. And really, the more I have leaned into this reality, the more I've trusted God who calls us to follow him by pouring out our lives into others. And that's not, that hasn't been easy for me, I have to confess. That hasn't come without its hiccups. But the more I have leaned into this reality, I've learned I really can't lose. This God now calls upon us and our church to trust him even now by following him, by pouring ourselves out into one another and into the world. And this God calls upon us to stop grasping, to seize things for our own sake so that we can truly be a church for the sake of others. Because no matter how low I may think that I can go as a servant, or no matter how low that we think we might have to drop to in order for us to be a servant, we find that Christ is in fact lower still. Because that is what it means to be God. So this is what it means to be God's people. And this is what we are called to embody.